so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC Podcast. I'm having the... I'm having the Lynn's Nicolay's this week. You got the yips. Come on. <clears throat> That's right. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me in the studio today are my co-host, Lindsay Nicolay. Good morning from a finally sunny again Nashville. Yeah, I meant to say like the always optimistic and pleasant Lindsay Nicolay. So, you know. There we go. Thanks for bringing it it on in there. And also with us is our trusty colleague, Brent Leatherwood. Howdy, folks. Good to be with you. Though I take issue with him being called trusty in this particular episode, because before we started recording, I got on to him in a nice, respectful way, of course, everybody, um, for not responding to my text about a project we're doing at work. So can he truly be called trusty? Well, you see, what's ironic about that is I have the receipts, Lindsay. I did, in fact, respond to your text. Did I respond in the way that you would have preferred? Well, no, but we don't live in a me-first world, Lindsay Nicolay. This is like the Fox News spin zone right here. Wow, it's the no spin <laughs> no. zone. Thank you very much. No, no, no but it's it supposed to be the no spin, spin zone. zone. I know, but the, the irony is, it's a really a spin zone. Wow, <laughs> wow, that's wow. Great. Well, uh, look, let, let me just say this. Okay, so I've been meaning to at the top of the show because I've been meaning to, and I always get to it uh, at the very end. But folks, thanks so much for leaving us the uh, the reviews uh, in the podcast apps. That is super helpful, particularly in iTunes. We do read all of those. And so if you want to go in there and leave us a comment or berate Brent about not turning in his book blurbs uh, for Lindsay's sake, that would be really cool. But we really do read them and we uh, enjoy hearing from you. So if you could uh, go into your app and leave us a rating or review, it'd be great to help people find the show. Yeah. And if you could see me instead of just hear my voice, you'd see me holding up uh, five fingers, five stars, like they do on American Idol when you're voting for their number. So to the camera, holding up five, five, five stars, everybody. She's looking for that five-star <laughs> review. That's right. And um, look, we, we've got some of those, and we've got some bad ones too. So if you want to entertain yourself, uh, <laughs> just go check it out. Uh, please be kind, as they say on another podcast. If you don't like the show, please forget I said anything. So, Lindsay, so that we can get into our show, tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week. Well, I wanted to start off our highlights uh, with an article by Catherine Parks about the new epicenter of the COVID crisis. So while we see numbers dropping here in the United States, sadly, in India, numbers are skyrocketing, specifically in Delhi. And Catherine has a good friend that lives there and is a medical provider, and they are just seeing heartbreaking things. So from her perspective— 
this friend's perspective who she doesn't share her name for protection's sake. She shares what we can be doing in the midst of this crisis uh, because Honestly, sometimes it's confusing to know what you can do when you're so far away. And I will just share those three things quickly. Check in with your Indian friends. So even if you don't know somebody in India, you might know somebody here in the United States from India who has friends there. Check in with them. She even says, go eat at an Indian restaurant and ask them how they're doing and how their friends and family are doing. Uh, She recommends to be careful how you give because of some of the nuances there. So she gives suggestions for that. And then finally, pray and is careful to highlight and say, I'm not offering a Band-Aid solution here or a platitude. I don't know how the Lord uses our prayers, how, how exactly how that works, but He has ordained to work through prayer. And so we need to be praying, and especially for an open door for the gospel to be there in the midst of this crisis and for the church to be mobilized. So remember India, pray for India, and reach out to those around you who are from India. Next up, we have an article by our very own, as I say every time, Josh Wester, in case you didn't know, he was our very own by now, and our intern, Jordan Wooten. This is an important explainer titled, The Contract Dispute Between Kentucky and Sunrise Children's Services. So I'll just read to you the opening here. A longstanding partnership between the Kentucky State Cabinet for Health and Family Services and Sunrise Children's Services, one of the state's oldest foster care providers, is in jeopardy of not being renewed after a months-long disagreement over language included in their annual contract. So you can imagine that this is extremely important because we need foster care providers all over the country, and we need them to be well-equipped. And it's important that this organization be able to operate based on their deeply held religious beliefs. So to find out more information about this case and why it is so important, be sure to read up about it on our site. And then finally, we highlighted a piece by Jared Kennedy last week, and I'm going to highlight a piece again this week because the topic is so important. And the title is, How to Prepare Your Children to See Their Gendered Bodies as Gifts for God's Mission. And the topic of gender and sexuality, as we mentioned last week, is constantly in the news. The way of the world does not accept the way of God and the intentionality with which He created us as male and female. And in fact, just as a sneak peek, I believe that Brent is going to mention something about this today in our culture section. So it's just that's just to highlight how important it is to be able to talk about these things intentionally with our children. And I just wanted to read you a quote from Jared's piece toward the end that really highlights uh, the necessity of discipling our children in these ways. So he says, the importance of each sex is lost if we dismiss the distinct elements of their giftings or roles given in Scripture for doing the work of discipling the next generation of believers. So there is a lot of debate within Christian circles about the roles of men and women. And while we don't want to go beyond Scripture, we also don't want to dismiss what Scripture teaches. So Jared breaks down some of this for boys and for girls and highlights how it can be implied in different ways, but at the same time, why it's so important to recognize these things. Because God, His glory is put on display, and our children flourish when they're operating within the bounds that God has created for them. 
Hey, thanks for that rundown, Lindsay. And just to jump in there, uh, if we've we've all been following the situation going on in India for several weeks, so I really appreciate Catherine, who has family in India, and this is obviously something that's very uh, close to her heart. Sharing that, uh, also the situation going on in Kentucky is one that the ERLC is uh, glad to speak into. We consider our partners at the Kentucky Baptist Convention to be just indispensable allies to us in the work that we're doing, uh, both to advance the gospel and in this case in the in the space of child welfare. And so we we are constantly fighting as a pro-religious liberty organization. We are constantly fighting to protect uh, religious freedom, to protect conscience rights, and to see that organizations and people are able to live and act according to uh, their deeply held beliefs. And so in this case, uh, all we're really asking, all Sunrise Children's Services is really asking, which is the child welfare uh, element to the KBC, what they're really asking for is to be able, not be forced to choose by Kentucky's government between the services they provide and the faith that leads them to provide it. I think that is eminently reasonable. It is such a basic thing that we are asking both in this case and uh, in in cases all around the country. In the Supreme Court, uh, we're anticipating a decision that is going to affect this very issue uh, in Fulton very soon, probably this month or next month. We will have the Supreme Court rule on the way the state should treat these faith-based nonprofits when they have these kinds of partnerships. But it's, uh, it's really, really important that as a fundamental American principle to protect religious freedom and the rights of religious people and religious organizations to act in accordance with their beliefs. Right, and listeners will remember that uh, just a couple weeks ago, uh, we hosted uh, Todd Gray, uh, who is the um, executive director of the Kentucky Baptist Convention, and uh, he has certainly been uh, outspoken, and rightfully so, about this situation where, I mean, you you have to realize, uh, Sunrise Children's Services, they've been serving children in Kentucky for years, and and this has not... uh, been a, a major point of conflict. Uh, but now, all of a sudden, uh, that balance that has been achieved in Kentucky has has been upset. And there are folks that have philosophical differences and political differences um, with uh, the way that Sunrise Children's Services uh, conducts themselves. And hey, that's okay. Uh, people are, are going to have those differences. But when you, in effect, shut out an organization like Sunrise and you prevent Kentucky Baptists uh, from serving in this way, the people that are harmed in this are these vulnerable children. And that gets lost, I think, in this. Um, and, uh, the, I mean, the state of Kentucky has, has, has got to relent here and carve out a space for a faith-based organization uh, like Sunrise Children's Services to, to, to be able to serve. And Josh, as you pointed out, the court decision that we are awaiting, uh, the, the actual case name is, is Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia. And if Kentucky uh, doesn't uh, respond here in a way that, that carves out uh, a space for faith-based organizations to faithfully serve in this, um, many analysts are anticipating that the Supreme Court will, uh, in accordance with the legal protections that are in our Constitution, um, will make sure uh, that there is space carved out in situations just like this for faith-based organizations to continue serving. Yeah, thank you for that clarification and that input, Josh and Brent. Uh, And I would just encourage you as listeners to stay tuned to our site and 
our social media accounts um, for up-to-date information about this Kentucky case and Sunrise Children's Services, but then about a host of other things as well. But for now, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Hey, thanks so much for that rundown, Lindsay. And Brent, that takes us to the culture section for the week. So tell us what's going on in the world. All right, so there are several big stories this week, and we will start with one that is likely affecting uh, a vast uh, portion of our audience, um, and that is this gas shortage that has now materialized uh, across major parts of the South and the East Coast. So CNN reports this, that gas stations in the southeastern U.S., face significant outages this week as the Colonial Pipeline shutdown stretches into a sixth day, sparking panic buying that is exacerbating the supply crunch, which, let me just parenthetically add this, uh, one uh, someone I used to, to work with in my, my previous life, uh, he commented, when folks talk a lot about panic buying, it makes me want to go panic buy. <laughs> And I thought that was a pretty astute observation. All right, so continuing with the CNN story. Uh, As of 7 a.m. on Wednesday, 24.8% of all gas stations in North Carolina, just over 15% in Georgia and 15% in Virginia, are without gasoline, according to GasBuddy, an app that tracks fuel demand, prices, and outages. All figures are higher than they were at the same time on Tuesday. The supply crunch appears to be much worse in some major metro areas. GasBuddy reported outages uh, impacting uh, 71% of the stations in Metro Charlotte, nearly 60% in Atlanta, 72% in Raleigh, and 73% in Pensacola. Now, as we were kind of talking through this before the show, Lindsay, like, Lindsay was saying, remind me again like what started this, so this is probably helpful. Uh, NPR kind of tells us how we got here. A cyber attack disabled computer systems responsible for fuel production from Texas to the Northeast, and now gas stations in the Southeast are seeing panicked motorists lining up in droves to fill their tanks and jerry cans. In some cases, NPR's Camilla Demonsk reports, drivers are getting turned away from now empty gas pumps. The overall anxiety over a shortage has also triggered slight price increases even as gasoline costs were already beginning to climb. So uh, my question uh, to y'all, dear colleagues, uh, have y'all experienced this? And given that we are in the run-up to Memorial Day weekend, when a lot of folks travel, (laughs) uh, is this causing some trepidation in your households? So I'm not going to do the husbands in our audience any favors, uh, or maybe the men who are married to some of the women who listen to our podcast any favors by saying this. But uh, a few days ago, my wife asked me, she's like, hey, will you go fill my car up with gas? And I was like, okay, sure. And she said, I just, I've heard that there's going to be a gas shortage and I'm just really nervous about it. And so like, I just decided to be a good husband and indulge my wife and go and do it. And man, that actually turned out to be the right call because last night we were, um, I, I was with some friends and on the way home, uh, we were hanging out outside by a fire, just, you know, trading stories. And on my way home, I stopped at the gas station and there was no gas. And so I went to the other gas station up the road where I saw cars and I was able to get 0.2 gallons of gas. And so then I drove over to the next town and I went to three different gas stations there, uh, including another one that was closed and was able to get another 0.2 gallons of gas total from all of that uh, excursion. And so then my day this morning, uh, 
started because my wife woke me up around 6 a.m. and just startled, like just shook me awake and said, go to Kroger right now. And so I rushed to Kroger to get gas since it was the gas station that was closed uh, when I got home last night. And I was able to get premium gas from Kroger. But even here uh, in South Nashville or south of Nashville, it is um, it is scarce. And I think it is a lot of panic buying. I mean, what I did see were a lot of trucks with folks like filling up not just their trucks, but their gas cans and their, you know, barrels in the back of their car or whatever else they might have had. Uh, because it's like you said, Brent, when people get panicked, like everybody panics and it just starts this. It, it creates a need, even if there wouldn't have been a need otherwise. It feels eerily like the beginning of the pandemic, you know, when it was toilet paper and paper towels and everything else. So it's like, oh, no, here we go again. 2021 is repeating. 2020 is repeating itself in 2021. But um, my mom said this morning that she waited 30 minutes in line, I guess, at Costco at 7 o'clock in the morning. But at least there's gas there. And somebody else on our next door uh, website, you know, that talks about what's going on in different neighborhoods, said there was gas at different locations. So we're not planning on going anywhere, so I don't feel feel worried at all. Uh, we have Publix across the street that we can walk to. So I guess we're sitting pretty during this one. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if maybe we uh, gave in to the panic buying, but I was just kind of looking at our schedule this weekend, and we have, we have seven uh, sports games to participate in uh, via the children in our household. And so that's a lot of driving back and forth uh, between the ball fields, and and so I just said, you know, maybe I maybe I need to go ahead and uh, fill up my tank and and my wife's tank. Well, the gas station that I picked, or that the only one really that I was able to pick, because the the five in between here and there were all completely out. Uh, they actually have started rationing it, and so I could only get twenty twenty dollars worth uh, of gasoline. And so um, yeah, this is definitely a thing. And uh, my stepdad actually messaged me last weekend. He's like, yeah, you, you might want to go ahead and uh, fill up your tank because he actually used to um, work for um, a gas distributor. And he got this ahead of time before uh, really the public did. And he was like, yeah, this, this is actually probably going to be down uh, for a little while. So um, so I went out and did it. And, and now I'm kind of thinking uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe I needed to be the one with the gas can, Josh. Well, I did actually take the opportunity to fill up my gas can. It was not empty, but I just topped it off in addition to topping off both of my vehicles this morning. And so hopefully we will be, we will come through this thing okay. I did see that they're expecting to get uh, their operations, I think they said something like substantially back online by the end of the week. Hopefully, I was. I would hope it would be by the end of the day, but we'll, we will see what happens. That pipeline, by the way, is massive, running from Texas all the way up the East Coast. It is unbelievable. And it's what, I think it said something like a third of the nation's gas or something co- travels through that pipeline. Yeah, a third of the nation's gas and, and 50% of the supply that goes into the South. And so, uh, so yeah, if, uh, if you're feeling the pinch out there at the pump, uh, we, we understand. All right, uh, the next big story that happened this week is the House Republican Conference Chair, uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney. She has been ousted from her position. So NBC News reports this. House Republicans voted Wednesday to remove Representative Liz Cheney from the number three position in the caucus leadership after she vocally rebuked Donald Trump, a move that strengthens the former president's grip on the party. Quote, we must be true to our principles and to the Constitution, Cheney, a Republican from Wyoming, told fellow House Republicans before the closed-door vote, according to a source in the room. 
She continued, we cannot let the former president drag us backward and make us complicit in his efforts to unravel our democracy. Down that path lies our destruction and potentially the destruction of our country. After the vote, Cheney said that if Trump tries to run again for president, she said, quote, I will do everything I can to ensure that the former president never again gets anywhere near the Oval Office. So, uh, you know, after this decision, uh, clearly uh, Congresswoman Cheney and the majority, at least, of the House GOP conference, uh, they're going in different directions. And, you know, as, as somebody that used to run a state Republican Party, uh, gosh, this I mean, this is a, a, a sad moment to, to see uh, a, a party that that is seemingly just so fractured. And uh, most folks know, I mean, the, the Cheney family, uh, in a sense, is is held in, in pretty high regard uh, in in Republican circles. And so, I mean, I got to tell you, uh, back when uh, I, I worked in politics, I, I don't know that I ever would have uh, seen a day coming uh, quite like this one. That's well said, Brent. I mean, it is uh, really chaotic and troubling time. Uh, we have, you know, in, in the United States, we have this two-party system. And I think all of us would agree, regardless of your uh, feelings about this particular moment, uh, that we thrive best when we have two uh, well-functioning and healthy parties. And uh, a lot of our listeners are definitely going to be uh, conservative and are going to be, you know, be Republicans. And so, you know, they want to see this this party not in disarray, uh, but in a in a different state. And so this is definitely lamentable. And the next big story this week is tensions are definitely rising uh, in the Middle East. So Axios reports this, with Israel and Hamas now engaged in their most destructive fight in seven years, the Biden administration is considering plans to dispatch a State Department official to join the de-escalation efforts, five Israeli officials and Western diplomats tell Axios. The fighting intensified uh, in the middle of this week with Hamas and other militants firing over 100 rockets toward Tel Aviv and other nearby cities, and Israel continuing its air campaign in the Gaza Strip by destroying high-rise buildings, Hamas facilities, and rocket units. At least 20 Palestinians were killed in the last 24 hours in the middle of this week, according to the Gaza Ministry of Health. That brings the overall death toll to 43. Three Israelis were killed and 200 were wounded, while three Israeli soldiers were critically wounded when Hamas fired anti-tank rockets at military vehicles along the border uh, with Gaza. And look, I mean, the, the Middle East is, is always uh, the subject of a lot of uh, focus uh, around the globe uh, because so much important uh, happens there. Uh, certainly, this development... Um, is one that's that's going to be having a lot of folks uh, that pay attention to international politics and international policy um, paying attention this week. You know, Brent, we are constantly hearing about fighting between Israel and Palestine. And yet I just cannot imagine living in the midst of a situation where I am exposed to gunfire and bombings and the threat of my life being taken every single day. When I get on a bus, I'm fearful of it. When I'm walking down the street, I'm fearful of it. When I'm walking into uh, a store, I'm fearful of it. It just is a horrible, horrible situation that we need to continue to pay attention to and also pray about. That's a great observation, Lindsay. I couldn't imagine that either. Uh, and yet over there, it's it's seemingly a part of the way of life over there. 
Um, all right, moving on to our final story. So uh, this week, the Evangelical Lutheran Church uh, made some news as well. So CBS is reporting this. The Reverend Megan Rohr, I, I believe I have that right, and apologies if I don't, uh, has been elected bishop of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America's Sierra Pacific Synod on Saturday, making them the first transgender person to serve as bishop in any major Christian faith in the United States. The San Francisco-based bishop has served as pastor of Grace Lutheran Church since 2014, the ELCA said in a press release. Rohr is also community chaplain coordinator for the San Francisco Police Department. They also served as a community garden coordinator for Project Homeless Connect and has worked to serve the homeless and hungry. I I highlight this mainly because, you know, obviously uh, this is an issue that for years the the ERLC uh, has has talked about, uh, folks that are dealing with uh, gender dysphoria, and um, it's hard not to, your mind just immediately go back to Genesis. Uh, God made them male and female. Um, and I, I'm just, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of at a loss for words. I mean, this this is certainly a, a cultural moment, um, and, and certainly one that uh, that Christians need to be aware of. And I have to be honest and say, it can be all too easy for Christians who are committed to the Bible's teaching on sexuality to look at this and other stories like this that truly are, they truly are ridiculous in the sense that sinful man and sinful woman, we go to great lengths to push off the authority of our Creator, where we will call wrong right and right wrong, we'll call upside down, we'll call top bottom and bottom top. We we will think ridiculous things that make no sense, but we cannot be those who roll our eyes at these stories and just um, push them off to the side and say, those people are crazy. Instead, as we highlighted with the article by Jared Kennedy, we have to be people who are deeply discipled in what the Bible teaches about this. We have to be people who listen well and befriend those who are struggling in these areas because there are deep seated areas of struggle for people, like you mentioned, Brent, who are wrestling with gender dysphoria, transgenderism, other things. And of course, our former colleague, Andrew Walker, has written a great book uh, about the transgender debate, which is very pastoral and compassionate. We need to be a people of compassion. Our churches need to be a place where people are welcomed in, but where they will also hear the truth in a loving and convictional and kind way. Uh, and we need to be uh, discipling our children as they grow up in a world where the, these things are increasingly normal, um, and they are going to be looked at as outsiders if they want to faithfully walk with Christ. This is an issue that's going to set Christians committed to the Bible's teaching apart from other people, and we're going to pay a price for it. And I don't know what that is, but we have to be willing to take the narrow path on this. I just want to jump in here and give a, that's exactly right, Lindsay, because it is like, that is so well said. And the truth is, look, we have unbelievable compassion for people who are struggling with their sexual identities uh, in whatever ways, 
But we want to also be the kind of people who can say, look, Christianity is something. And while we believe that there are many different faithful expressions of Orthodox, historic Christianity, uh, Christianity is something. We have not only a confession, but we also have a, an anthropology. We, like, like Brent said, when we go back to Genesis and we see male and female, he created them. Uh, there is a pattern here. And the Christian message is not one that says, uh, contort yourself or shift your opinions to fit whatever your feelings or emotions or the culture or whatever is telling you should be uh, the way things are or, or is right. Instead, look to the scriptures, look to God's pattern and design that is found uh, and explained there and conform yourself to that. That's, that is the, the mark and the pattern of the Christian life is conforming ourselves to God's design and not conforming God's design to our uh, feelings, emotions, or, or anything else. And just one last thing to say on that. That's a great point, Josh. And that's not to say we're not doing that just because we want to be contrarians. It's because that is the loving thing that our Creator God has designed, and that's what is that's what leads to flourishing. It's the loving thing that leads to flourishing, and that's why um, we trust God's good design and we proclaim it and we walk it out because we know that His intentions are for our good. All right, well, since we're recording a little bit earlier this week, uh, so far, Lindsay, Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. So now it's time for the lunchroom, where every week we tell you about the things that we've been talking about with one another. Lindsay, uh, I see you're ready to go, so tell us what's on your mind. Okay, so mine is admittedly a little bit lame this week, but it's nonetheless important. So I have to be dairy-free because of my son, Grant. So I have to not only be dairy-free, but try to be soy-free, which is just so sad when you're sitting next to your husband and he's eating ice cream almost every night because the dairy-free substitutes are not very good. And the other day, a friend of mine was going to Starbucks and wanted to get me a drink. And I'm like, I don't even know what to get. An, an iced tea? Boo, that's boring. So I found this uh, dairy-free Starbucks guide. So if you like jump on some kind of diet train, you know, that says milk is bad or you are one of those people who cannot have dairy, this is an extensive list that actually makes things sound appealing. And so uh, you can have freedom to go to Starbucks again and not be sad about it. So that's just my little public service announcement to the world of people who have to be dairy-free, which includes our very own Megan Smith, soon-to-be Mayo. Soon-to-be Mayo. Yes, uh, prayers go out to Megan Smith, by the way. We didn't talk about her yet on the podcast, but she, who is getting married this month, unfortunately, sadly, she broke her foot on Saturday night. And so she's already had the surgery. Surgery went really well, and she is recovering. And her fiance, Eric, is, uh, by all accounts, taking excellent care of her. And so we wish her well and a very speedy recovery so that she can walk down the aisle uh, later this month. I guess that's probably a good segue for me to go ahead and talk about uh, what's going on with me, which is to say, look, my, my lunchroom is of no value to you, but it's exciting. This is what I would be telling my colleagues anyway, which is that tonight we are getting on a plane and my two children, my seven-year-old Jackson and my four-year-old Ellie, or almost four-year-old, uh, we will be getting on a plane for their first times to fly back to North Carolina, assuming that you know the planes have fuel to get there. And we will uh, be going back. I'm graduating from Southeastern on Friday. And then as a both graduation present and just the kindest thing I can imagine, my parents are going to take care of my children for two whole weeks. And so McAfee and I will be 
be flying back here without our kids uh, for a couple of weeks to both enjoy some time together, to get some work done, and to just my my kids will be able to hang out with their grandparents, and it will be hopefully a really excellent time for everyone. But we are. I am unbelievably thankful for that. Very excited. And yeah, I'm praying this fuel shortage uh, is no big deal and end soon so that we can really enjoy some of our time when we get back. Josh, I guess, well, first of all, congratulations. That is super exciting. Lots of hard work has gone into that. And I know your wife is probably so thankful that that monkey is off your back, so to speak. But uh, I think it does have value for our listeners because it maybe it makes you more credible. Now they'll actually believe that you kind of know what you're talking about since you have an advanced degree. Perhaps, perhaps. All right, Brent, tell us what's on your mind. Well, you and I actually, before we got started, uh, we were kind of zeroing in on a similar thing, which was news this week that the uh, Major League Baseball team, the Oakland A's, uh, might potentially be looking to relocate and I think as we actually have talked about before, there is a group of uh, pretty high-powered folks here, investors, that are trying to lure a Major League Baseball team to come to Nashville. And so there's some speculation that was going around this week as to whether the Oakland A's may in fact be moving to Nashville. Well, the story came out that eh, that's probably not going to happen. Uh, John Lohr, who's the executive director of the group, Music City Baseball, said he doesn't believe that Oakland will relocate to Nashville, but it could be a good first step towards Nashville getting a team. Uh, they apparently have their eyes on the Tampa Bay Rays possibly moving to Nashville, who also uh, are looking to get a new stadium. Uh, so they're actually in a very similar situation uh, to the Oakland A's. The other thing I wanted to bring is also related to baseball. So as folks know, I'm a huge Braves fan. I, I try and watch them or actually listen to them uh, most every night that they are they are on, and um, the other night they happened to be on uh, uh, ESPN, and so I was watching them, and uh, one of their pitchers ended up making one of possibly the best plays uh, that I have truly ever seen. Um, so to set it up, uh, reliever comes in and throws the ball. The batter hits it, and it takes a big bounce to the opposite side of the pitcher, and he gloves it behind his back, behind his head and everything, and then throws, proceeds to throw a strike to second base to start a double play. I mean, honestly, this is one of the best plays I've ever seen in all my years of watching baseball. And uh, so the link that we are uh, showing you in our show notes uh, it goes to a Twitter account named Cut4 that they, they just love pulling out great baseball plays so that folks can see them. And, and they titled it, Pitchers are Athletes Too, uh, because sometimes pitchers get a bum rap of, of not being able to field their position all that well. Uh, well, this this play sh certainly showed uh, the contrary, that, that pitchers are, in fact, athletes and can sometimes make just timeless plays. Okay, Brent, I say go baseball. Throw that ball and round the pillows. <laughs> but I have a guest. I have a guest appearance for our lunchroom. Hey, hey, can you say can you say hi? Hi. <laughs> hey, can you tell everyone how old are you? Mm. Say two. Two. Yes. Can you blow everyone a kiss? Say. Say bye. Bye. Okay. And who's your favorite character? Say Minnie Mouse. Minnie Mouse. 
That's great. Well, <laughs> hey, we we did in fact end up having an interview this week, so I'm I'm thrilled. We did. Yes, it's such a sub- substantive it's such a substantive interview. Well, look, we are happy to have Marion join us. And by the way, if you haven't seen that clip that Brent was talking about with the pitcher, it was uh, man, it is quite something uh, to see him catch that ball basically behind his head. Uh, and man, it was. It was really cool. It reminds me on Saturday. Saturday was like a day full of baseball for me. We did Jackson's like, uh, you know, 8U game. And then he and I went to see Vanderbilt play Alabama and watched a smoking pitcher from Vanderbilt throw. I don't know how many strikeouts, but they were absolutely dominant. And then got to see uh, the Braves close it out with a win and over the Phillies. And it was just... Man, a good day for baseball all around. And so, anyway, top it off, uh, watching that clip, man, go baseball. Well, that's going to do it for the show today. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, As always, if you like the show and want to help us spread the word, please consider going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or review, or you could share the episode on social media and just helps other people discover the show. We really, really appreciate your support. And we really do read all of the reviews that have come in uh, and appreciate you guys sharing your feedback with us. But for Brent and Lindsay and myself, we want to say thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back next week with more content. 